Welcome to the Blue Oasis Podcast. This is the podcast for finding peace and prosperity in your life, learning the history of hobbies, as well as making a little side hustle out of your hobbies. If you want to find balance in your life and find peace, this is your show. Get ready. You're listening to the Blue Oasis Podcast. I am your host, Adam Rostey. All right, let's get to the show. And welcome back to the Blue Oasis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Rothstein. With me today is Guy Morris. Guy, how are you? Doing great, Adam. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, so you have a back, quite a background. Um, you've been all over the place. You've been... Uh, uh, some say diverse, some say eclectic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, quite a background. Quite a background indeed. Disney, producing Disney records. You're an author, and uh, and uh, you even ran away from home. That was, you know, I had I had a rough start. Um, true, true. Um, I my journey began as a 13 year old homeless runaway. I worked alongside migrant workers in Southern California to survive. Went back home briefly uh, at some time when I was 14 in order to uh, get a GED. Uh, I got that in, when I was 15 and, and I left home and never looked back. Um, but that was that was kind of a rough start, but that was not the end. So I, I, I got a chance to go to college a few years later. And in my mind, uh, that was my chance to change my stars. Uh, and so I, I really kind of took every advantage of it. Yeah. And, and, and I can't even imagine like, just like, even at 13, even if you are hating your parents or, or it's like that teenage phase, you're going through puberty and all that stuff. It, you know, like that, that's the last thought on my mind, but. It, it wasn't something I, it was, it, I felt that it was almost a necessity. I had came from a fairly violent abusive background um i won't go into all the details but it was a pretty horrific experience and um uh, one particular event happened that kind of it was it was either that or or having it get even worse uh, i won't go into the details but yeah it was sort of not what i really wanted to do but it was what i felt i needed to do at the time and in, in a lot of ways, I look back now and I think it taught me independence. It taught me self-reliance. It taught me the value of hard work. Um, it taught me, it, it um, taught me that I could never really take um, anything that I had for granted. I had to work for it and, and be accountable for myself and, and for others. And um, it was, I think overall, it, it really kind of made me grow up a lot faster than most other kids my age, that's for sure. Um, I, I think, um, I, you know, I, I look back on it now and, and realize that it, it, while it was a horrible experience at the time, um, it, it, it add, added value to my life. Okay. Um, understood. So, um, and, and when you went back and got your GED, you didn't go right away to college. You, you, you worked in you then immediately went back to work. Is that correct? 
Oh yeah, well I was I was working the whole time. We were very very poor and if I wanted to have a new pair of jeans, I had to work. If I wanted to buy a pair of shoes, I had to work. If I wanted to buy a guitar, I had to work. If I wanted to buy anything I wanted, I had to I had to work for it. Uh and so I would I continued to work at that point. Now technically the laws at the time said you couldn't work prior to 16, but I found I found that if you lied good enough and showed a lot of enthusiasm that you could get a few places to basically um, forget to ask for the your birth certificate you know, kind of thing. So I worked at fast food places and, and other types of places until I, I graduated. And then when I got my GED, um, I think it was that May or June, I, I was in Southern California. I packed up a little tiny knapsack and put my guitar and a little taped it up into a little box and then put on a hat that an old guy had given me as a, as a token of his appreciation or affection. And I went, walked for a few miles and I found the nearest freeway and hitchhiked my way to Tucson, Arizona. There was a Christian commune there that I had intended to join. And I was there for about three months before um, all of my own, all of my own issues caught up with me and I, I felt uncomfortable around so many people and, and was having a hard time feeling connected and trusting. And uh, I got a job there. And um, I think my first job was um, parking cars in, an, in a garage. It was a business, it was a, a business um, building and, and they, uh, because they had really tight parking for a lot of insurance reasons, they had the attendants basically park the cars for people. So um, that was my first job. You were a valet. I was a valet. So uh, yeah, and my life changed though. I mean, I was I was struggling. Uh, you know, I wasn't making hardly any money. I wasn't. I was still kind of on the edge of poverty. I was renting places that were rat infested and falling apart. Um, you know, but I was um, I was part of a church. And I did a lot of ministries with the church at the time. And at, through that, I met uh, a young woman who was actually eight years older than I am, as it, as it turns out. We, we wound up getting married. She got pregnant right away. And I, I had to think about not only just barely supporting myself, but I had to think about supporting a family. And a, 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 an opportunity came along by nothing short of a miracle, in my view, for me to go to college. And I saw it as a chance to change my stars. And so I, while I was functionally illiterate when I started, I, I took 24 units. I, I worked my, 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 my nugget off. I worked at night, usually uh, as a graveyard yard shift at a 7-Eleven. Uh, my wife was ill and we had a toddler, so I had to take care of my toddler. But somehow, I think I slept like two hours a night for like four years um, somehow survived it and um, it graduated with multiple degrees at the top of the dean's list. I was given a full scholarship to go to graduate school. I was also accepted into the Harvard MBA program. And all of that good fortune was a result uh, of the fact that I had developed a macroeconomic model. One of my degrees was in economics. I had developed a macroeconomic model that, you know, a very complex computer model with lots of algorithms to um, forecast the future of the GNP and interest rates and all that kind of stuff for business purposes. My model outperformed the Federal Reserve and 
virtual, ev virtually every other bank in the nation and changed how we do computer models to this day. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, what university did you go to again? Just University of Arizona. Uh, university of Arizona. Uh, okay. That's not Sun, De uh, Sun Devils, right? Or uh, is that Arizona State? That's, I think, Arizona State. Okay. Um, I want to say Wildcats, but I, to be honest, I was so slammed trying to take care of work, life, school. I had no social life. I didn't go to any games. That was the last thing on my mind. I, while everybody, all the other kids were basically out partying, I had my, I was working or had my nose in a book. Unbelievable. That, was, that was my chance to change my stars. They had all come from good families. They had all come, you know, a lot of them drove to school in the cars that daddy bought them. I rode my bicycle to school. Um, and so this was my chance to change my stars. And there was absolutely no way I was going to let anything stand in that way. Amazing. Sad. But, you know, I, but I, I never really got that party party gene. Um, I was I was I was too desperate and too hungry to 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 do that. I was never much of a partier. I was a, an introvert. I did go to football games uh, at my university. Uh, never went to any basketball games. Big regret. But but to just stick it out and just study for for countless hours a night is just incredible and you took and you were allowed to take 24 units at the time that's got to be um okay. i was not only allowed to take 24 units but i was accepted into the program 24 units um deficient of the minimum requires requirements to enter to get accepted and they said that they would make up they, they would allow me to make it up as i went so that was part of the reason why i took a a heavy load. The other part was I was get, I was working on multiple different degrees: uh, economics, finance, and computer science. And so I, there was no shortage of reading requirements and homework and studies and and other things, programs to develop and other things to do. And then, as I said, my wife wasn't was ill at the time, and so I had to do, spend a lot of time taking care of our our daughter. And then when I wasn't doing any of those things or studying, I was I was at work. And while I was at work at 7-Eleven, because I took the night shift because I figured it would be quiet and would give me a chance to study while I worked. What that's in that's incredible. Uh, wonderful thinking. I mean, it, yeah, it's I, a wonderful thing. It 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 but it it cost me a little bit. I, I I wore myself down so bad that the last couple of in the last three months of my final undergraduate semester I had caught and I caught something called valley fever which is sort of a viral form of mononucleosis and I was in bed for over a month and so I had to I had to come out of that and try and play catch up and um, I think the, the the I was fortunate in that my computer model was mostly done at that point and that the results of that model which were got a lot of notice around the country um, enabled me to kind of get some grace period from some of my professors to kind of make up for things. So I, I graduated technically, but I actually had to work a little bit the following summer to kind of make up for some of the work that I had missed. 
Um, but I was going to go to grad school. And so I needed, a, you know, I needed uh, some time before grad school started. Um, and so it gave me um, it gave me that chance to basically keep my degrees, graduate, but um, but continue on. So but yeah, I, I, I pretty much wore myself out. And that would be the first time that I, I worked myself into a um, <laughs> into the sickbed. I, I, I would tend to growing up the way I did. I think even though I had accomplished a lot in, in college and then since, it took me decades to get over the idea that somehow I I was just this dumb poor kid because I was I grew up with my parents my my stepdad and my mom telling me that I was dumb and, and worthless and my best hope in life was to join a trade union and and so it took me a while to you know to get over the to get past the idea that that I didn't have the benefits that everybody else had the only thing that I had that they was that I could work harder than most other people. And so that was my, that was my um, fallback was I didn't have to be, I, could, I, I couldn't do it by, with my charm. I couldn't do it with schmoozing. I couldn't do it because of daddy's name. I couldn't do it for all the other reasons. Fortune 100 executives will typically ex succeed. I had to work harder than pretty much everybody else. And that became sort of my, uh, something that followed me for decades. All right. All right. So you made the Dean's List uh frequently correct well no that was uh my first couple of years i was i was hoping to actually continue i was hoping to pass far enough to get to the next year i got to the dean's list the final year um when i i had one of my economic for senior economic professors for my my more senior classes was the dean of the business college and um he and i got to know each other i became his biggest pain in the ass um because i would constantly be saying now wait a minute what about what about well how do you explain this or well tell me about more about that and i would ask so many questions during class that he would he basically halfway through the semester or through the year he basically said okay morris you get three questions per class that's your limit um and so if, if i raised my hand he'd say now you're sure you want to waste one of your three on this one or can you wait till later for that so he kind of <laughs> i became his um most kind of annoying student in a lot of ways, but I had the reason my macroeconomic model had outperformed everybody else was because I had a theory as to why the other models were deficient in missing a big piece of the economy that they weren't the, uh, not a big piece of the economy, but a key element of the, how the economy worked um, that they were missing. And that happened to be the productivity change of technology investments. And nobody at that point in the late 70s was thinking along those lines. And um, I happened to develop that theory. I, I, it was never proven. I had, I had to basically write up the theory and then build the algorithms to prove it. And that definitely caught his attention. Um, and uh, I, I think that, that, that alone. And the, the university got tons of grants from the, from the federal government to continue working on the, that theory. Um, I, I didn't want to do any more computer modeling at that point. I was, <laughs> I, I, I was burned out. I wanted to go on to something else, but um, it, it, it definitely brought him a lot of attention, brought the university some attention, brought me some attention. And, uh, and, and, um, and I guess that leads me to my next question. Um, 
Uh, so after all that success at the University of Arizona and grad school and and everything that came in between, uh, you began producing music for uh, Disney Records of. And oh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, I started a career. I, starting with IBM, I went to a number of different, you know, no matter how smart you are, maybe it would have been different if I'd actually gone to Harvard, but I didn't have the money to do that uh, and relocate the family and didn't know how to get a job there and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, you start off with a lot of different, you know, management and training kind of jobs and finance and economics and they move you around to the different different groups that are mergers and acquisitions and a number of other things so i i began a 36 year fortune 100 career at that point and um one of my goals was to move back to the california coast so i ultimately got back to california unfortunately my first marriage um fell apart um in part because well, there were a lot of reasons, but um, um, part of it was because I had started drinking. I, I, I didn't know how to deal with all the pressure. And so I started drinking and, and um, started some other dysfunction, um, uh, dysfunctional behaviors. And so um, there was a point in time where I had eventually kind of worked myself up. I was at a senior role at, at Occidental Petroleum. I was doing mergers and acquisitions, acquisitions corporate planning, um, uh, corporate budgeting and finance. Uh, I, I, would, um, I was responsible for all of our EPA compliance capital expenditures and, and moving those up to either the president or the board of directors for approval. Um, and I... At one stage in time, I, I after my divorce, I wanted to kind of re-explore. You know, after divorce, you're, you're trying to figure out, well, who am I, right? I, I knew I, you know, I'd married so young that I started, I was still trying to build my own identity. And so I started doing the things that I loved. I, I learned how to go diving. I went diving on wreck dives. I went deep diving. I, I did a lot of diving off of California. I learned to sail and I got I bought an old 1956 wooden sailboat um, um, and fixed it up and then wound up selling that. And at one point in time, my son, who had I had custody of, decided he wanted to live with his mom because she was living in a really nice house with a pool and everything else. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to be alone, I, I didn't want I didn't want to rent this big town home that didn't really make sense for me. So I sold everything and and moved on, bought and moved on a big 50 foot overall um, sailing yacht. And so I a friend of mine was a film producer. And how Disney started was I, I had I made some friends in L.A. and he was a, a film producer, an indie an indie producer. And he wanted to do a project. He had the idea for a project of do, uh, going to Nickelodeon and having them create sort of an MTV, MTV kind of channel in Nickelodeon, but for kids' music. And I thought, well, I didn't know how much kids' music there was out there. I, I, I wasn't aware of that much, but I thought, okay, well, you know, sure. And he, he, he said, he played me, I said, do you have any demo songs for him? Any place to start? And he, he played me a song and it sucked. <laughs> It was like really like heavy grunge music for kids. You know, it was like I said, I don't, I don't think that's gonna that's gonna fly. He says, I know, I need some more songs. And I had been a songwriter for many years. I, I that was one of the things I trained myself when I was young, and I was. Uh, um, and so he asked me if I'd write some songs for him. So I did. I wrote him, uh, spent three or four or five days, and wrote him five songs. And we went into the studio, and and this massive like. 14 hour long studio session. We recorded all of them. And, and I, and 
he had his project. And so I did, I went back to doing sailing and doing other things. I didn't think much of it about, but he never got the project with Nickelodeon. Six months later, I get a phone call from out of the blue. Hello, Guy Morris. I said, yeah. He said, well, this is a uh, Harold and I can't remember his last name, um, Barnes or something like that. Uh, I said, from, from Disney records, I'm, I'm listening to your music and I really like it. I'm listening to your song, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I, or listening to your tape. And I'm really liking it. And I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm honestly thinking, and I challenged him. I said, who is this really? I said, I didn't send Disney any tape. He said, well, yeah, I'm looking at the tape right now. It's in my hands. I said, I'm pretty sure I didn't send anybody any tape. I never send anybody any tapes. And he so he, he listed the names of the songs. I said, oh, that's Jack's tape. Jack must have sent you that tape. And it turns out my friend, when he didn't get into Nickelodeon, he passed the, the demo tape on to Disney. So they they the way they did it at the times they had a lot of contract songwriters. So I was still working my corporate job. I was living on the boat. They had a lot of contract songwriters, and they would have projects. And let's say it's a it's a mermaid project, right? So they would have the the songs that they had in the mermaid movie, which is a different tier. That's the the movie division. But then the um, the toy division and the parks division would basically take those themes. And they would make some kind of toy, um, a mermaid doll or something, mermaid book. And they would then sell it with a little cassette full of songs. That, but they didn't want to pay the really high priced copyrights to the big guy that did all the movie. So they would get other songwriters to write other mermaid themed songs. And they would sell that with the toys. So I, I worked on a mermaid project and an Aladdin project and a scary songs project and a dinosaurs project. And I think there was one other, I can't remember. Um, and I did that for, I guess, a couple of years. Wow. So, okay. So I, I quit for, I quit because it, it was really hard to work for them. And you'd get a, you'd get a call on Tuesday and they'd want a, a demo tape by next Tuesday, you know, and the first, time a couple times was fun then it started to become sort of a knee-jerk sort of you know burden where i'd have to cancel everything to write thong songs for this particular theme um and then get a go and find a studio where i could record them okay so let me get this straight so i can credit you for the for creating part of the orchestra or the uh ost the orchestrated soundtrack for the little mermaid uh aladdin and and I think the land before time is—is is that Disney or is that? If you had else? bought the to the toys at the parks at that time or in the Disney store, and they had Disney stores out then, they would sell toys with those things. And a lot of times they would have little little. At the time, it was cassette tapes. So I'm I'm dating myself. Then later it became CDs. I'm not sure what they're doing now, but yeah, if you had bought a toy for somebody back then, uh, it might have had uh, one or more of my probably. Let's see, I I landed songs. And they wouldn't always take the songs you wrote. So they would then decide from the other contractors which ones they liked. But I definitely landed on uh, Dinosaurs, a scary song project. And I wasn't Aladdin. It might have been a mermaid. I can't remember now. But it's it's been four, 35 years. And, and, was, and I forgot. Was the land before time... Uh, you said you worked on a dinosaurs project. I'm thinking the land before time, but I'm not. I forgot if that was Disney. No, there, there was a dinosaur show on dis uh, on TV, and it was like essentially these Muppets. Oh, that were dinosaur Muppets, and there's a, a 
it was I, I watched the show it was some of it was funny some of it was irritating it was almost like a honeymooner some of the characters were almost like honeymooners if they were dinosaurs but it was the the big fat daddy you know the big daddy and then the 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 the, the lounge lizard kind of uh tyrannosaurus rex kind of character and and the baby and so it was it had all these themes and as i said it's been a while since i've worked on it but yeah it was it was, it was actually the dinosaur show uh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, I I know what you're talking about now, and yeah. and um and I guess all right. I'm not going to spoil the ending for those who haven't watched it. Um, I I you know can still, it is, you can though. still hear some of my demo songs. I, I actually produced some of my demo songs and put it on Bandcamp. So if you go to guymorris.bandcamp.com, you can listen to some of those demos on the Kids Project song. Okay, okay. Uh, I do want to move on to uh, yeah, the. Yeah books and your awards and any advice for future authors oh advice for future authors um don't make excuses just do it you know um the first draft always sucks don't worry about writing something that's going to be award-winning when you're first starting writing right i and the other thing i would say is take classes right learn learn the gifts now i had come out of a corporate environment so when I wrote my first book, I had been writing for years, but I've been writing PowerPoints, executive briefs, policy statements, technical manuals, things like that. Developing characters and plot and themes and, and getting people to smell and listen to and, and feel the environment you're in. Those, those are the things I kind of had to learn. And my the first book I, I wrote, and the other thing... Uh, uh, and, but I had to get some help in doing that. And I, I got, I hired a developmental editor on my first book, paid a lot of money to have her basically. I, she was uh, out of Simon and Schuster. She was now an editor at Amazon. She was doing some freelance because she knew my wife. So she was going to help me. Um, and, and I asked her, I said, listen, I, I, I think there's a really great story here, but I need your help to really kind of get it to where it's a, a really great novel. And, and, and I said, I just, I need you to rip it up, rip me up and put, show me how to put it back together again. Well, God bless her. <laughs> she took me at my word. I got 44 pages of single space typewritten notes of things I had to read, things I had to learn, changes, things I needed to start, stop doing, things I needed to start doing. You know, um, my grammar was, was way off. I, I, you know, I didn't, I had to develop style. Just Buku things, and then every single page of the manuscript had notes of what to change and how to change it. And and my first thought when I got all this back was, "Oh Lord, have mercy, I suck. <laughs> maybe I should maybe I shouldn't do this." After I kind of took some deep breaths, you know, kind of got over, spent a week feeling sorry for myself. I started. I said, "Well, she did exactly what I asked her to do." So I might as, and I paid for this, so I might as well start at page one and start and start working on this. And I did. I took some classes. I took master class. I bought the books. I bought the specific books. She told me um, that book was listed as book trip, was The Curse of Cortez. It was listed on Book Trip, which is a subsidiary of Barnes & Noble, one of their favorite 25 books of 2021. They called it Indiana Jones Meets Da Vinci Code. It was a finalist for book of the year from the reader's favorite um, two years ago. So it was a really good first draft experience. But 
I wound up rewriting that story probably 30 to 50 times before I got to the version that I actually settled on. So be patient as an author. Be willing to put in the work. Don't just write something and think that everyone's going to go gaga over it. Be willing to have people rip you up and tear you apart and give you a model on how to get stitched back together. Do that hard work and do research. The, that was the other thing I learned was that nobody writes well about something they don't research, whether it's a location or the restaurants you're going to have your, if it's a romance, you got to know which restaurants and what's on their menu. And if it's a thriller, which is what I write, you need to know geographies and science and politics and religion, do the homework of doing the research and your readers and your reviewers will see it and they'll appreciate it. So even regardless of what genre you write, um, research is a key to success. Of course. Um, I'll tell you about my experience because I think this would be fitting. I wrote a book by the name of Dribbling Freedom, and that was, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, Kilo versus the New London uh, Supreme Court case, I decided to like, you know, mm -hmm. mirror that court case and then, wow, and then okay. just... And then, but have like NCAA basketball and also have it take place in the city of Pittsburgh because I needed a um, a Rust Belt city uh, right. for the story to progress. And I, and, and I talk about the geography. I actually had to, to learn about the Oakland neighborhood a bit mm -hmm. and as well and and just the building of the pit football stadium as well yep. and how they did did that and and it is humbling too and and you're not going to know everything right away and 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 i just put it on amazon because sometimes you have to go and because if you believe in something you know put it out there because yeah a lot of the establishment the author's establishment if you will um they miss good things. I mean, Harry Potter was rejected until an 11-year-old boy was given like the first draft of it or like or one of the drafts of the book and he mm -hmm. loved it too. Yeah. So you, you just never know. Well, that, that's a, that brings up a good point. Um, and this is a personal choice. But the, the publishing industry is changing and it's evolving. Many people have the idea that, and, and I did too, that I wanted to get an agent, go to a traditional publisher, get paid this big giant advance, and I would you know, become a bestseller. And it, after several, not every single one of my books has won, won critical praise, recognition, and, and or awards, and I'm selling reasonably well in certain channels. Um, but... I, I got rejected by, by over a hundred different agents. Now, whether it's the way you write your query letter, a lot of times I realized it was because I didn't have a big platform at the time because I had ignored Twitter and all the other social media because I was busy writing books. Um, but, you know, there's, a, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why agents... Um, don't want to deal with you unless you have some some market or some something that they can actually attach onto. If you're already an influencer and you've got a million followers, they want to just they want to follow that too. 
But if, and if you don't have that profile, it doesn't matter how good you write or, the compel or how compelling your story is. It's really hard to get an agent. Without an agent, it's hard to get a good publisher. So I explored the, the various different other forms of publishing from um, 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 Vanity Press, uh, which is basically, you know, it doesn't matter the quality of your book. They'll go ahead and, you know, write the covers and format it and do some minor, you know, minor technical editing for you and get it out there. Um, or um, um, hybrid press, which is a little bit of, of, of both indie plus um, pu traditional publishing or full indie publishing. And I realized that what a lot of what a publisher does, I, I could do myself. Not that I would do my own editing, but a publisher is going to hire a professional editor. So I went and I looked, sought, sought out some professional editors with a lot of with a lot of creds and a lot of experience and a lot of um, positive ratings. I hired my I hired I, I spent the money. I if I wanted them to if I believed in my book enough that I thought they should invest in it, I figured I should invest in it as well. And so I did. I invested in my own books. I invested in top quality editors and designers and formatters. Uh, I put together an amazing website. Uh, I started building my social media presence and my, my my platform. That's taking a while, but it's I'm getting up there now. Um, and so I wanted to produce a product that I felt would I would be proud of that would sit right next to a Dan Brown or a James Rawlings or a Michael Crichton. Now, Kirkus, which is a gold standard in the industry, is, is recommended all my books, and they only recommend about 30% of the books in the publishing industry. So to get that 30% as part of that 30% as an indie is, 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 is good. But again, it's if you really want to be a writer, I don't believe in writing, doing anything unless I'm going to really put my heart and soul into it and really try to work hard to be as good as I possibly can be. Research is part of that. Choosing your publishing vehicle. So I, I decided to go indie, not because I don't think I'm good enough to get published in the traditional market, but because I just didn't fit their, their niche profile. Right. And so um, I decided I would build up that platform by having three or four different um, amazing books. And maybe the next book, a traditional publisher, I'm going to be going to uh, Miami in a couple of weeks to for the reader's favorite award ceremony, where I'll be meeting with some publishers and some agents. And since this is the third award of one from reader's favorite, maybe I'll get some attention there. Maybe not. Maybe the next book, maybe not. It It's not a, what I'm trying to say is don't let those kinds of hurdles be what stops you. Um, there are all kinds of ways for you to find a market and a reader for your readership for your book. Don't let the idea that I have to go traditional publishing or or, or not of anything at all um, be your, your roadblock. Okay. Um, I guess final question, um, awards. What was your first award? Uh, how many awards you've had and uh, just recommendations for uh, getting to that point for uh, anyone else? Um, well, the first award I got, the first, The Curse of Cortez was the first book that I wrote, but I wanted to continue polishing that when it wasn't the first book I published. I wrote, my second book that I wrote was a book called Swarm that dealt with um, artificial intelligence political or religious corruption. It dealt with issues with having to do with the 2020 election, um, China, uh, a number of things that were going on at the time that made it uh, everyone who all my beta readers were saying, you got to get this book out there. Don't wait for a publisher. 
even my wife, who had basically been saying, no, I don't want to spend the money for you to publish, was say, okay, you got to get this out there. Just pay to do it. Um, and the inspiration for that book, just a short story I think your listeners might like, was that I'm an AI expert. So I knew a lot about the industry and the business, and I'd becoming, been growing concerned with uh, artificial intelligence for a number of years. But I was inspired to write the books when I discovered that a program had escaped the NSA spy labs at Sandia. When I figured out how a spy program could escape the NSA and what they may have designed it to do that needed that specific technology, they sent two FBI agents to my door. Apparently, they were a little upset that I had figured out something they thought was supposed to be top secret. And more than that, what bothered them even more was my snarky attitude. Yes, I did it. I figured it out. You wouldn't be here if I'd gotten it wrong. Oh, man, this is so cool. I can't wait to tell all my friends. I got the We Are Not Amused speech from them. And then my wife came home and I got the What Did You Do speech. So um, I, after that experience, I thought, OK, I've got to write it. I've got to start writing this, writing about my my knowledge of AI and how this stuff works and why, we, you know, in, into a series of thrillers. And of course, you know, with a thriller, it's not only about being well-informed, but about asking the simple question of, gee, what could go wrong? Um, <laughs> so my first award was with Swarm. Uh, that was my AI thriller. That won the Reader's Favorite Gold Award. It was also a finalist for the IAN Book of the Year. Um, and I didn't really pay much attention to it at the time because I was, really didn't understand about some of the awards and I was really busy trying to get the next book out. So then I got out the, um, the Curse of Cortez, and the Curse of Cortez was a finalist for an award um, from Reader's Favorite, but then it was listed on Book Trib, which, as I said earlier, Barnes & Noble's favorite 25 books of 2021, and that actually got me a lot of attention uh, because of how big Book Trib is. Um, it, and it's for when I do, I do a lot of signing events. I do probably about 30 a year, and that's my number one seller is the Curse of Cortez. The third book that got released is a sequel to a follow-up of the series, the AI series I started with Swarm, and it's called The Last Ark. And that one just won the Reader's Favorite Silver Award last month, and that's where I'm going down for the award ceremony. Amazing, amazing. And and I think... And, and I don't apply for a lot of contests. Uh, I know that I have applied for other contests where I didn't really rate, so it's not a universal thing. Some of them are looking at literary style. Some of them are looking at, you know, more literary type of work. Uh, I'm a typical thriller, so I'm really looking for that e emotional reaction from my reader and the ability to get them to think and, and thought-provoking. Um, but yeah, but I've been very honored and, and humbled by the fact that every single book has gotten some level of recognition. Okay. And, and even though, um, I'm probably really far away from ever getting to, uh, that, you know, that publishing standpoint of any awards, I mean, you never know that you just got to keep working at it. Yeah. Just got to keep working at it. I've yeah. published mostly nonfiction stuff so i'm not sure how that would do but yeah that's, that's a little harder yeah a little harder but to do. fictions tend to make more money um than yeah. fiction so there's more ready markets there's a lot of people that want to learn how to do whatever or want to learn about some topic and so i've actually been tempted to write some a non-fiction about artificial intelligence just to fund the other books <laughs> i think that's a wonderful idea um if so if anyone wants to apply to any of these um, awards, 
uh, there there is an application process to this. Uh, all of them have an application process and some sort of um, app, some sort of fee, right? There are very few that are free because they have to get judges, they have to get people to read these books. Some of them get thousands of submissions. Some of them are part of um, the process of getting a professional review on the book. So they're looking at the reviewers to, to be part of that initial filtering process. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, it's I, there. I At one point in time, I looked up all the different book awards for thrillers and there were a dozen. But I had to decide for myself, do I want to spend my promotional money trying to just apply for book awards? Is that really going to get me readers uh, or do I spend the money on a video trailer or do I spend the money on some other promotion or do I spend the money put, producing my next book? Um, you know, so I, for every author, the, one of the things about being an author that I would I would tell your listeners is that it's a business. And so with any business, there's, you have to have capital, you have to have resources, you have to have, a, you know, goals and objectives, and there's going to be trade-offs and constraints. You, you only have so much money to work with. Um, and so you, you, you may want to, you, you need to do some form of promotion, but you'll, you have to decide what the best use of your dollars are. And for me, um, I found that most of the things I tried to do online for promotional purposes didn't provide me with a return on my investment. Now, in other words, what that means, if I'm going to spend $100 just to make a round number on a promotion, I'm expecting to get at least $101 in royalties back. Um, and if I didn't, it's not returning and it's not giving me a return on the investment. Now, there's some of it that where you, if you're a brand new author and you're never nobody knows who you are and it's a it's a fiction i mean with a with a nonfiction, there's a steady you can find markets for people who are in that business or who are looking interested in that topic but you got to build up your name and that there's a little bit of promotional cost in terms of just getting people to know who you are um i found for me my best promotional dollars was to do events and and i so i formed a group here in the seattle area we now also have a we have a chapter now in Seattle and one in Portland, and I basically bring in other really accomplished authors, award winners, bestsellers, really um, professional people who've written multiple books, and we find um, dozens of different local events, fairs, and festivals, and we share the cost of a booth and we sell signed copies of our books. And I sell more books doing that than I do on Amazon, uh, Drafted Digital, Barnes and Noble Online, or any of the other channels. Okay. Okay. I guess uh, anything else you want to add before I close this out? Um, yeah, the, the, these are, these are, I think um, I'm proud of what I've created. I, I think I've done a great job. I, I know I'm getting a lot of recognition. I'd love to, you know, your readers to go. Um, I'm, I'm going to be doing a um, holiday special. Uh, they buy a book directly from my website. They, they get a 15% discount from retail. And um, that's guymorrisbooks.com and um, always open for more reviews and, and um, uh, email me directly and may, let me know what you think. Okay. And the uh, email will be in the description. Uh, yeah. There's listen. a way to contact me on the site. Um, you know, there's a contact, you know, kind of a contact page, but yeah, I'm always looking 
uh, open to hearing people's feedback, pros and cons. Uh, I deal with politics and religion, so I know, and artificial intelligence. So I, <laughs> I, I pick all kinds of things where I can basically step on somebody's toes. Um, and But I, I think that controversy allows us to really kind of create um, thoughtful scenarios and, and characters and, and plots and, and stir, get people to really engage in dialogue and thought and, and thinking. And so um, I, I, I really try to kind of go after the, the meat of the bones, the, the meat of the matter, and, and um, you know, hopefully uh, stir some, some, um, some thought. There's artificial intelligence is going to be the most profound technology that the world has ever seen. There's going to be good and bad things that will come out of it. And um, my job, part of my job, what I'm trying to do with some of my books is to do with artificial intelligence to raise the awareness of what some of those, what could go wrong scenarios are the same way that Michael Crichton did with DNA and cloning with Jurassic Park. So I'm hoping to have an impact. And so far, the people who read the book are telling me that it's, um, I'm on track so far. Okay. Um, all right. I will uh, put the links to your books, uh, your website, and uh, your email in the uh, show notes. Uh, you can just uh, send that to me on uh, Podmatch. And uh, with that being said, uh, that will conclude this episode. Uh, but before you go, uh, if you'd like to support me, I will have my links in there um, uh, for the uh, Substack uh, for this. Um, I'll also, um, also, if you want to support me, you can get an audiobook or Dribbling Freedom, all that great stuff. Uh, all the links for both of us will be in the uh, description or show notes, depending on. Uh, if you're on YouTube or uh, podcast form. Uh, so check that out and uh, share it with your friends. Like, comment, subscribe, five-star rating, write a little review, all that jazz. And, uh, and with that bit being said, take care.